Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Suman Sadhu. Uh, he's an angel investor and entrepreneur. He's the current chief revenue officer uh, at Plato Designs, uh, and he's invested in 25 companies, uh, including companies in artificial intelligence, uh, augmentation of, of intelligence, lifespan, augmentation of um, humans. It was originally in biochemistry, uh, and I love the, the the depth and the range of all those things, so I'm really interested in getting into your 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 wisdom on, on the relationship between stress and creativity. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, thanks Stuart for having me. Cool. And so let's get right into it. What is your definition of stress? So, um, so I think stress is, so I think in, inside of our bodies, we, we have um, you know, a response uh, to our environment and um, you know, that, that could be under extreme, uh, you know, extreme temperature it could be under extreme um, physiological circumstances it could be under extreme psychological circumstances but kind of the the root of stress is you know there's there's the external stimulus and then there's also um, sort of the internal response and the actual internal response that we have against stress uh, you know is is something that that, that can be harnessed for for a number of uh, activities so you know if you take for example um, starvation is is an example of a, a type of stress that actually activates a particular cellular pathway in the body, which which actually leads uh, you know us to organize our relationship to you know our metabolism in a certain way. And so we can actually you know stress can be something that can be a topical uh, thing for for people to interact with, but stress can also be relating to our biological responses as well. That's a really great definition, and when somebody's not nobody's brought that up before, but it's uh, it goes along with what I've read about um, actually body work and massage therapy. Somebody gave a really great definition of the nervous system in its most basic yeah. form, which is it's a mechanism by which some sort of external um, stimuli gets translated into the brain and then goes to, into our muscles and then um, develops a response out of that internal stimuli. And it's yeah. always happening. It's like always a circular loop where we're always sensing stuff and then having muscular reactions against that sensory um, information. So I actually have an interesting uh, kind of aside, because if you actually look at medicine, both ancient medicine as well mm. as, uh, you know, sort of contemporary medicine, contemporary medicine is very much about treating things after the fact. You know, something goes wrong, and then you find some intervention afterwards. Ancient medicine, you know, without sort of drugs and without other things is really about diagnosing sources of stress. So actually kind of recently, um, uh, uh, under, underwent uh, a healing by a shaman from Guatemala and actually like was very very interesting experience in that um, they were able to identify you know sources of stress inside of my body that um, I, I'd known about but had not necessarily done things about and I think that this yeah this relationship 
uh, of, of kind of sensing and understanding our bodies and, and, and kind of using other mechanisms to relieve stress are, are very interesting applications of medicine that, that we don't necessarily talk about, but have you know, a lot of physiological implications. So just from saying that, I want to ask, uh, you, you, you're trained in the Western understanding, and obviously you've also had some experience in um, traditional forms of healing. Uh, do you yeah. think that in the future, in the market, we'll have some sort of combination of both? Yeah, so I think, I think what's, what's interesting is that, um, you know, when people think about something like meditation, and when people think about all these apps that exist, they think it's not technology, it doesn't have any physiological mm -hmm. impact on us. Actually, like, control of breathing is like this massive uh, on-off switch for like the autonomous nervous system, mm -hmm. and kind of mm -hmm. all of the Eastern practices around, um, you know, hacking sort of these control systems are just, you know, manifestations of technology. It might be that you use touch or you might use sound to go activate those things. Mm. And media is like one way in which we can start to activate that, those things. You know, the fact that we have all of these different types of media available to us today means that actually there's going to be more uh, inputs into these epigenetic controls, which then activate these different pathways inside of us. So I'm, I, I think that there's going to be this, you know, much more rational understanding of those pathways in terms of like, let's go map what happens on an fMRI scan for you know, meditation. And then also let's go, go design an experience to go activate that pathway. Like we're just going to we're going to treat it like an engineering challenge that we're not skeptical around, but mm. something that we can actually measure uh, internally and externally. Huh. Do you think that there's something that we can't measure though, that is also uh, very impactful? I think, um, you know, what, what, what I found most interesting about this healing, for example, is mm. that they uncovered points of tension in my body. And I think that there's some, you know, imagine applying, so there's some intuitive understanding of like, you know, let me feel through your body and identify where, uh, you know, your left shoulder is less aligned than your right shoulder. And therefore you have tension in your left shoulder. So something must be causing that. Or like, you know, I, I, a lot of people hold fear and, and uh, in their stomach, which actually causes like the buildup of stress. And like, if you massage that out. So I think that there's taking that and turning it into something quantitative is something mm. interesting. Mm -hmm. If I could like measure in real time, um, you know, uh, how tense are you? Like that should be something that can be quantified. And well, I think there's a, yeah. The, and there, and ha, are you familiar with fascia and the re latest research coming out about fascia? There, there are, they, they, they're just very recently starting to get into something called dynamic, dynamic ultrasound and, uh, -huh. uh elastosternography. I don't remember the second one. Um, but, most of the times that we've gone in with pain in our bodies, we've been going to doctors and we've been going in and they've been giving us x-rays. But the problem with yep. x-rays is it only shows the bone and some soft tissues, but, it, um, but essentially what they've found out is that they've given x-rays to people who are symptomatic of pain and then they've given x-rays to people who are not asymptomatic of pain, but the same thing shows up in both cases. So the, the, the x-rays are a very bad way of uh, um, defining where pain is in the body. But with fascia, mm -hmm. We are where a lot of the sensory nerves, we are starting to see a lot of these um, uh, actual manifestations of uh, uh, what they call densification of the fascial layers. Uh, mm -hmm. that's, and we're starting to see that actually as a good sign, a good way to diagnose these pains and stuff like that. What's your understanding of fascia? Have you looked into it at all? Uh, I, think, I, I think I haven't necessarily sort of investigated it in any analytical sense, but I oh. think from, 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 from sort of first principles, if we 
think about like, how do you measure things inside of you that you can't see? Mm. You know, what are the things that could be possible? So, um, you know, like measuring tension, like of muscles, like how do you have a baseline measurement of what that tension is? And then how do you ch measure how that changes? Mm. Like what's the, what's the mixed panel of tension? Like, you know, that's, 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 that's something like, you know, how do we implement that? Do we, do we have some implantable, you know, uh, nano materials that are kind of constantly circulating the bloodstream and then basically based upon the way mm. that they kind of form, uh, you know, like the, w where they start to attach, like, you know, to, to our muscles, do they tell us something about the density of our, of our muscles and how that's changing? Like, I think that they're, you know, it's like, it's all about thinking about, you know, if we know intuitively that we're holding tension mm. and if we know intuitively that a situation holds tension for us, like the more analytics we have around it. So for example, like people that stress you out, if you have an Apple watch and there's some interaction socially that stresses you out, um, you know, like b seeing your elevated heart rate. So how do we, co how do we correlate kind of location uh, awareness of the people that we're around with our heart rate? That's like mm. one intersection of like data that could give you hey, I get really stressed when I'm around my boss. Mm. I get really stressed when I talk to this client. I get really stressed when I talk to my, you know, my mom about like marriage. And it's like, you haven't been married yet. It's like, well, what does that do to your heart rate? If we had some objective mm. measurement of that, that could be very interesting. And then I think about all the other signals that, you know, again, if we formalize sort of, if, if stress is something that every, you know, every human is born and their tissues are kind of, um, that, 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 that tissues essentially like have not been exposed to environmental stresses and then they interact with the world and then you kind of accumulate all this mm. stress debt on, on measuring that and then like kind of getting rid of it could be an interesting way of preventing a lot of upstream consequences of stress, mm. which then over time build up, you know, like a lot of people have eating disorders because their organs are twisted in a certain way. And, you know, like, uh, so the big, you know, one of the things that came out of this healing, which is really interesting, is that um, I uh, actually had a snowboarding accident in 2006. I paralyzed my right arm mm. and uh, recovered from full paralysis. Um, and the thing is, like, what they'd said is, like, this accident actually caused you to hold a lot of stress in your stomach. And then uh, you essentially had held it for, like, years. And, and it's like, now, now I feel like a, the, how I feel before the injury. And it's, it's, it's kind of like... These are things that acupuncture, these are things that massage, these are things that kind of all of these sort of what we consider non-medicine. Like mm. really it's just mm. like intuitive feeling of what's, how our body is and, and, and how it is. If we could turn those into quantitative things and mm. then we could start to invent experiences to go activate them. And so it might be that in the future you have, yeah, some implantable sensor that's measuring your, your, the tension in your muscles combined with like, a measure of your heart rate and then like when things uh correlate it's like hey this happened we need to take you back to a state that mm. is less 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 uh less stressful like you know how does how does that feel i think we're gonna move to we can design these kinds of experiences and we can actually become more cognizant of uh, of them and i think that that's the direction that this whole movement around mindfulness and mm. epigenetic triggers is really mm. going mm. you know this is really interesting. I have a lot of different things we could go from there, but one of the most interesting things I want to ask you is during this healing that you had and you yeah. released that thing in your stomach, um, was there an emotional component to that as well? Did you re-experience that emotion? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting because um, so the, the funny thing is I'd come off of a jump 
uh, oh. on the mountain in Austria. Oh. And I dis dislocated my shoulder. And I was kind of, you know, like the, the corgi dogs are like taking you down the mountain, like with, the, with your dislocated shoulder. And you're trying to hold the pain, you know, like, wow, this really hurts. And so where are you going to hold the pain? It, and like, mm. when, when I was undergoing this massage, like, one interesting thing is like, as soon as some of that tension gets relieved, you feel these like ripples through your body of like, you know, because all of our, all of our tissues are connected. And, you know, and, and so it's, it's interesting to feel like how tension gets, that gets relieved mm. in that way. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think um, going, going back to your question, which uh, I kind of lose sight of because I'm so reminded of this injury. <laughs> yeah. But um, no, it, it, it felt like I was unwinding something. Mm. Yeah. And essentially, you know, I think that's, that's, that's where we go with stress. Our bodies hold stress. Our body has a bunch of cavities. We have a bunch of tissues. You know, they can take pressure in certain ways. Our organs can twist in certain ways. So, there's, there, you know, that psychological stress can also form memories and can form trauma, as mm. well as, you know, that trauma can be stored in the body. There's something around like that, you know, uh, I think there are like, People who are, who are grandchildren of Holocaust survivors still feel the tension because it's passed down through their epigenetics. So mm. I definitely, you know, there are mechanisms by which our body, we store, you know, there's many levels of information. There's sort of the immediate, like we've felt the stress, it feels painful. Then there's recording a memory and, and internalizing it as trauma. Then there's storing that as information in our, in our tissues. And then I think that it gets even more encoded into like, our biology and into our epigenetics. And I think that there's like these multiple layers of information by mm. which we kind of store and, 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 and sort of manifest stress. And I think unlocking and un, un, uncovering each of those things is the opportunity for a much more rational uh, sort of, you know, um, uh, sort of application of, of everything that's coming out of mindfulness and, and sort of that, that focus. Absolutely. Um... That's really interesting, and and uh, yeah, and as you just mentioned, like it's this epigenetic thing where we the behaviors that we're doing throughout our daily life and how much stress we take on and how much stress we don't actually process uh, then gets into our DNA, and then we then pass that DNA on to our offspring depending on when exactly we we conceived. Um, yeah, uh, really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it gets like epigenetics to me is a really interesting opportunity in uh, in medicine in mm. general um, in terms of um, you know, I think like one of the great things about studying biochemistry uh, is that, you know, every year there's a, there's something that gets revealed about our biology that you didn't understand before. And I think that like, you know, the sort of relationship of, uh, you know, DNA to RNA to protein, like the whole, the numbers of layers that exist in that is increasing over time. And there's more and more control points. And um, epigenetics is this really interesting aspect where, you know, like two twins who may be born in the same city, but like live in different cities, have different exposure to cancer or different exposure to other types of diseases. You know, like I have a lot of relatives, my ethnic heritage is Indian. I have a lot of relatives that died of like lung cancer because they live next to a coal mine. Mm. And it's like, you know, so, so I think that like understand the thing, you know, like an epigenetic control applies to what we eat. It applies to like, what environment we're in. It applies to even our interaction with screens. These are creating new environmental pressures, new wavelengths of radiation that mm. you know, our ancestors didn't, didn't get exposed to. Um, these epigenetic exposures also probably apply to information consumption too. Mm. You know, some, mm. you, 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 you know, like it may be that uh, sort of uh, you know, 2000 years ago, we're in a village and the way the information was transferred was person to person. And if there was an earthquake, 
then you know everyone knew and everyone knew how to respond to it but the earthquake wouldn't happen that often now a mental earthquake is like you know some some 9-11 style you know grief spreading through uh society amplified by social media mm. so we're actually um you know our environmental stresses like we don't have to see an earthquake or have to see a disaster to experience it because we have video mm. we have media we have sentiment and so what's interesting is like the the number of epigenetic stresses that exist in our environment is uh so much more than our ancestors and that actually ma makes us more susceptible to um you know to to epigenetic stress and also it means that we also because we're in a different time we're, we're in a rational time of biology we're in a rational time of computing it means also we have a counteracting force to design against to make you know, to, to relieve ourselves from this. That is really interesting. And everything that's coming to mind essentially is now is a future shock that we're undergoing future shock, but yeah. at the same time, we're now also building tools and not only necessarily software tools, but also societal tools, uh, epigenetic tools in order to uh, enhance our ability to become anti-fragile as all of these yeah. new sources of stress are coming into our lives. And now yeah, this is, mm -hmm, go for it. Th th this, is, this is a new era you know, I think that the biggest revolution in medicine is that, you know, medicine can go from being reactive to proactive. Mm. And proactive means, you know, being aware of things ahead of, ahead of the, the cause, being able to predict things, and then being able to un unwind things as they happen. Mm. And like, that is, a, that is a future of medicine that we have an opportunity to design against. And we spend the vast majority of our time at work. Um, so we have an opportunity to design a more mindful view of work, which is kind of how we got originally connected. But mm. I, I, I definitely feel like, yeah, we're, 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 a st we're at a stage where instead of looking out, we're looking in. Mm. And instead of just looking in, we have an opportunity to design kind of what is the optimal uh, ability for us as humans to, to thrive because, uh, and go design against that. Like let's design against epigenetic stress. Let's design mm. Uh, against you know tension let's uh, uncover it in real time let's let's go un unwind it and so i think you know we'll take it we'll we'll scale uh you know, ancient ancient practices and, and and apply that in the in the modern era are do you know of any companies have you come across any companies that are doing this or that are um, about to do this or working on something like this already so so i think i think these things this is a tremor that I don't think is fully realized because people don't realize it's a category. Mm. You know, pe people look at Theragun and they're like, oh, this Theragun thing, which is going viral. It, it happens to highlight that a ton of people hold stress in their muscles. Mm. That's, why, that's why you use Theragun. Um, you know, all the success of Calm and Headspace is that we live in a just much more stressful time. Mm. And, you know, we need, to, we need to relieve ourselves from that tension. We need to have an outlet that mm. is accessible to us. Um, you know, I, 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 but these are the early innings of this kind of awareness. What I'm trying to bring to light is essentially, you know, like ultimately, ultimately, you know, just like the moon mission, uh, or just like any other sort of the human genome project, we can identify an area, uh, of societal need and we can go like rally against it. And I think the big, you know, thing that we can rally against is like this ultra awareness of our bodies and our presence mm -hmm. and essentially then optimizing for 
um, you know, the, uh, the stress that we actually need to feel and how to yeah. protect ourselves from that. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that like we can actively design against. Like there's mm -hmm. going to be companies, you create a category and a calling. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of, the, one of the things that I think is very important is for us as a society to recognize that uh, you know, we've been in the attention age. We've been optimizing algorithms to drive attention to humans and we're saturated. You know, you can't escape having your attention taken up by something. Mm. And the thing is that there's going to be a, a counter movement to that. And that's what the mindfulness movement is about. That's what the sort of epigenetic medicine movement is about. That is what like this sort of new uh, ability to recognize and unlock stress is about. Mm. This is what uh, work mindfulness is about. This is the anti-slack movement. <laughs> this is the anti-TV movement, oh. you know. And this is, this, is, this is like a calling. Like we have a bunch of tools technologically. Mm. We have mm. an awareness and we have uh, literally market saturation in human, human, like there's more stress than ever, we've ever seen before. Mm. Um, so we're, we're at sort of the, the right era to go address this in a, in a deliberate way. Let's go mm. design out of this crisis mm. that we've created for ourselves. Mm. And it's, it's not only the more stress we've had, because as you mentioned there, it's... Um, uh, the stress has always been there. The earthquakes have always been there, but it's also the perceived stress, which then goes into our, our cognitive centers and then also affects our bodies in the same it's, way. It's, as it's, it's, stress. Yeah, it's, it's synthetic stress. The point yeah. is like our bodies yeah. are constant. Our nervous system, our biology is constant. Mm. The mm. variables basically like the types of stress and the, and the where, where it comes from. You know, essentially if I strap a VR set on your head and I have you attacked by a dinosaur, you're going to have the same feeling as uh, as as our ancestors did you know yep. mm -hmm. like we can bring that stress back mm -hmm. we also have like types of stress that we never encountered before we have like anonymous tribes attacking people on the internet mm -hmm. like that was never a threat before mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. all of the sort of minutiae of human personality are now like exposed psychopathy can be scaled on the internet and mm -hmm. deployed as an attack attack tactic against against everybody else mm -hmm. you know like um, i don't know if you've ever read the book givers and takers by mm -hmm. adam grant um so essentially he talks about like society you have people that uh give naturally uh mm -hmm. to others you have people who take naturally from others and mm -hmm. then you have people that are matches like you know i i you give me uh, a rock and i'll give you a stone and you know like uh we'll we'll, we'll do a trade and like that's the kind of thing but it's really interesting that like that type of behavior, like, uh, so I studied infectious disease mm. and, uh, and uh, you know, there are host parasite relationships and these host parasite relationships exist in humanity too. You know, there are, there are people that will feed off of others. You know, they'll, mm. they'll, they'll, they'll feed off of their generosity. They'll feed off of, uh, you know, their friendliness. They'll feed off of the money that they have, but essentially like we're just this massive host parasite society mm. and the internet amplifies like, you know, that and creates like new interactions for these hosts and parasites to interact with each other. So we have like, we have internet scale stress. Mm, mm. That's a good yeah. concept. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, how do you personally recognize if you're in the company of someone who is a uh, constant taker? Um, I, I think you find yourself being constantly drained. So by, by, uh, by inclination, I'm a giver, which means that I get energy from giving to others, being generous with time, being generous with advice, it makes me feel good. Um, I think that if you are a giver and you are kind of experiencing that you feel drained by the interactions that you're having, it's not giving you energy, it's removing energy from you. 
then you need to recognize that that interaction is something that is not healthy for you. Um, and then you also need to recognize that curating your environment is actually the key thing that you can do to mitigate your stress, like, you know, and, and recognizing who you gain energy from. Mm. And uh, I think that's, you know, it's kind of a concept that I call the shield. It's like, you need to, you need to essentially have the shield because, you know, if you're, if you're a taker, like then you gain energy by taking stuff from people. You're like, Hey, that guy has more money than I have. I'd love to find a way of getting that money mm. and you do things in a much more transactional manner. Mm. And I think, again, it's, this, it's this, the two sides of the host parasite relationship. That's a, mm that's being amplified in society. Really interesting. Uh, so I have a question, might be a kind of ignorant one, but your last name is, is Sadhu. Um, yeah. And I know that Sadhus in India, are, it's like the term for, for a monk, right? What yeah, is the- it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, uh, it means, it means holy man. It means person of wisdom. Uh, I think uh, it also, you know, other, other, other connotations are kind of, you know, um, like my name Sumon means good mind. Mm. Um, so obviously like, you know, someone who's a, who's a thinker. So, but these are, these are things, you know, these are things I inherited a long time ago. These are not things that, you know, there's not a brand that I've chosen to to (laughs) emphasize, but, but, you know, I think, uh, you know, come, come, have a huge heritage of, of, you know, people who, who learn and like love to be curious about the world and pass wisdom. So, but, uh, yeah, fortunate. So, um, so we talked about stress. We've got a really good definition of stress that I haven't had before and also really cool epigenetic stuff and everything like that. Let's get to creativity now um, mm-hmm. and your definition of creativity. And I'd love to talk more about everything we just talked about in the sense of creativity. Okay. So um, look, cre- creativity is about the recombination of ideas mm. and the non-intuitive recombination of ideas is creativity. It's something that's unique to human because we don't necessarily have linear programs for this, but we have the ability to imagine and to apply our mind for the, to the, towards this linear recombin- like non-linear recombination of ideas. And these non-linear recombination of ideas means that essentially you can converge upon these ideas uh, in less time than it would be if you were to combine these ideas in, at random. And that's essentially like what creativity is. And then there's a bunch of uh, aspects behind creativity. So one of the aspects behind creativity is like, novelty and originality and novelty and originality comes from conviction conviction is something that we're sort of in short supply in the world because we have so much noise around us you know it used to be that you're in silicon valley and like you're one of the few people that thought about technology in that way so therefore that amplified your conviction but if you're in a silicon valley which noise like you know every conversation is just in front of you it's environmental it's it's an environmental stress it actually diminishes um, it diminishes sort of creativity mm. and um, and so kind of one of the one of the things I strongly believe in is like conviction and creativity are very aligned and I'm actually a big one of my influences is so I'm a big fan of surrealist film directors so mm. my favorite my favorite director is uh, a guy called Alejandro Jodorowsky mm, yep. Alejandro, Jod- mm-hmm. Alejandro Jodorowsky like surrealists they don't care <laughs> like, and I think, I think it's, it's almost the ultimate aloofness and sometimes it can be too much so, but I think that, you know, we live in a world where we are being programmed to seek permission for things. And there are actually very few people that generate permission for others. And I think that if you're uh, an original creative, you know, surreality, like anyone who's in the surrealist movement, basically like 
were so far removed from, you know, they were actually rewarded by novelty, not rewarded by societal convention. It doesn't mean that Jodorowsky's movies are like the same as, you know, the most famous directors in Hollywood, but at least on a scale of originality, they were able to explore a you know, terrain that may not necessarily have been. Uh, um, and that's, you know, all the people look at these creative people and they try to take the, the, all the, all the uh, signs uh, or all the kind of, there's a word I'm looking for, which is essentially um, erat erratic behavior. And they, they're like, oh, they're erratic and they're creative. So I'll just copy the erratic part and then I'll yeah. be creative yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like so, so for example, I'll give you a couple of examples of sort of, there's, there's, there's originality and then there's amplification of that creativity, which then leads to mainstream appeal. So mm -hmm. for example, there's this um, Japanese anime director called Satoshi Kon. And Satoshi Kon uh, was responsible for creating animations like Paprika. Uh, it's actually done in an animation style that resembles none of the traditional animation styles. Like, you know, Studio Ghibli in like Japan is like very famous for a particular animation style. Mm. Satoshi Kon was very original in that. So he actually, um, so everyone is familiar with Inception, the movie, mm. but Inception, uh, was inspired by Paprika, which was this, uh, you know, this, this animation that Satoshi Kon did about, um, you know, dreams within dreams, people who are investigating dreams to solve crimes. It came from that. Mm -hmm. And then it was amplified by Western directors. And so like, you know, uh, Darren Aronofsky credits Satoshi Kon as like a key influence. And actually like a lot of the shot transitions that Satoshi Kon has in animation uh, you'll see in Darren Aronofsky's movies. So mm. we actually see like two things. We see the original and then we see the amplifier mm. of that. Mm. We see the same thing with like Jodorowsky. Jodorowsky created Dune. Dune never got made. Yeah. But like Ridley, Ridley Scott like really was inspired by the work that him and Mobius did on, on, on the artwork for that. And that led to Alien. You know, like all of that comes and is amplified by uh, the original. So I think that there's, you know, creativity like, First step is like, how do you have enough conviction to be original? And then, you know, sort of how really creativity gets amplified is, uh, is, is a different job. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's sort of, I think you need to have two, the two sides of things, but we see this separation between those that are original and have conviction and those that amplify mm. originality and then get the credit for creativity. Mm. Uh and then, so how would you suggest that people who are uncomfortable with their own uniqueness and unique voice, how do you, would you, um, uh, uh, what would the advice be to actually own their creativity and find that conviction? So I, I think the first thing is like, again, it, it sort of comes down to uh, writing for yourself as an audience and almost like imagining that you are the authority. It's like in society, there's so many people seeking approval and permission for things that actually we need more permission creators. Mm -hmm. So actually like more, more, more people should essentially create the permission for others to appreciate them. And I think it's like, it's almost like, um, you know, more genres can be created if people believe that those genres. So I think there's this like leap of faith initially to believe that what you're working on is genre defining. Mm -hmm. And then essentially just amplifying that and finding and being aware if that resonates or not. But, mm -hmm. but to understand, you know, it's the Steve Jobs thing of like, most of the world around you was made up by someone who's not smarter than you, but braver than you. Mm. And I think it really comes down to remembering that um, if you can make, if you can make a genre, the way you make a genre is by telling people it's a genre 
And mm. I go, people go, oh, wow, okay. I guess that is a genre. You know, I guess that's jazz. I guess that's, you know, uh, I guess that's ballet. I guess that's like hip hop. I guess that's ecstatic dance. Mm. I guess, you know, it's like go and, go and define a genre and then kind of own it and then see if it ha- gets amplified. And then suddenly, you know, you go from being fearful that no one's going to accept your thing to understanding that you were the one that created permission for that thing to exist in the world. Mm. That's a good line. What is the relationship between fear and creativity? And how does fear, what role does fear play? And then how can we work with fear in an intelligent way? Um, so I think if you're doing anything new, you're going to be fearful because there's no one to confirm it. Like that's literally what conviction helps you overcome is, you know, convic- conviction can be due to delusion. Conviction, uh, conviction could be because some, you know, some Medici said to you, hey, like actually, you know, Leonardo, you're like, I don't want you to be on the streets. I want you to paint, uh-huh. um, you know, uh, or so I think there's, there's that little period before you're about to create something or publish something where fear will set in because if we're if we're alone with that thought we have fear and so we you know it's it's about being comfortable with like you know what i'm the permission setter or i'm gonna go work with a small group of people that's why a lot of creative movements you know had a small group of people that amplified each other's thought because there was that was the little pocket of permission Mm -hmm. that allowed you to overcome that fear so I think it's like, if you have that fear, create a pocket of permission mm-hmm. with a few people and then go be the authority on that thing. And then mm-hmm. we'll see more of those things amplified. Mm-hmm. Which is like the opposite of what our schools teach us. Cause our schools teach us to essentially fit in, uh, get in line, um, figure out what the teacher wants you to, wants you to learn and then learn that. And like, this yeah. is a whole other thing essentially. Yeah. We're, we're, we've formed habits around seek, uh, gaining permission. Mm-hmm. And we have to unlearn the habits of gaining permission. Mm-hmm. You know, children don't gain from permission for anything. They just kind of do things. Mm-hmm. And over, through our adult life, we accumulate a bunch of trauma around like, you know, stepping out of line. Mm-hmm. And then essentially like that trauma then affects our behavior. So it's almost like tying back epigenetic stress and like tension and stuff like that. Permission is one of those things like in, you know, like what happens, you know, you're a software engineer and you know when you were a teenager you played games and then you created games and then you like joined a company like microsoft and like you had to comply mm. because you know like what happens it, it, it all of that fear and all of that tension then becomes part of you and then yeah. essentially you lose it so imagine if we could take all those people and like relieve them of that fear again and mm. bring them back to that 14 year old state what would happen to the world we have this like net new uh, you know, influx of creativity again. And that's kind of an interesting concept. Well, and then to get to your interest in augmented intelligence, artificial intelligence, because it seems like that might be happening regardless of whether we want it is essentially the only way we're going to be able to survive and thrive in this, in this new world is, is if we tap into our creative, um, uh, creative outlets or creative ability to create our permission to create. And if we don't, we're probably going to get shoved under the bus. Absolutely. So like, you know, like um, what we're building at Plato is like, we're actually building a software enabled design agency and we're using software to augment creativity and fundamentally like the thing that's left, uh, you know, after we automate everything is human creativity, human creativity and human expression. Mm -hmm. So building, you know, we actually have an opportunity. We can take the view of like, let's 
uh, automate everything so humans have nothing to do or we can say let's just like maximize humanity like mm-hmm. you know let's like let's let's maximize humanity and so if you take that as a design principle you know you're basically like so we talked about creativity as this like non this ability to do non-linear recombination of ideas you know in a in a, in a way to converge upon ideas like much better than random mm-hmm. like that's what that's the thing that we can maximize it's like you know you can't conceive a film because a film has many dimensions of input and influence without the brain. <laughs> mm. you know, we can't, we can't um, you know, imagine science fiction without dreaming. We can't sort of, um, without childlike play, we can't actually like, build upon concepts of history in a, in a novel way. So I think that there are like, some, some, some sort of modes of thinking that, computation and artificial intelligence will never achieve and really like we need ai to you know like if, if you're struggling with having enough time to write emails have machines write emails for you and have you edit emails mm-hmm. yeah. you know like the, the the point is that we can design we can take advantage of the advances in automation to really like maximize humanity and i think that that is the direction like I, th- I think about, you know, like Slack's about to IPO, mm. how much market cap is under threat through distraction. <laughs> and, and Slack is really this kind of, it's like the peak, peak attention, uh, uh, attention draining economy, basically. Look, I, I, think, I, think, I think we're seeing, look, we, we, we've got a ton of market cap that is essentially exposed to the attention economy mm. that's going to mm. be disrupted by the mindfulness economy. <laughs> Interesting. And essentially, so we have, we have Facebook, we have billions of dollars of market cap associated with the attention economy, where we're at peak kind of synaptic saturation for Facebook. Yep. And so that's the rebellion. That's why people sign off of accounts. That's why people like, you know, hate the newsfeed. It's like, that's, that's our biological rejection of it. And biology is constant. Mm. So, you know, this is like, a, and then obviously with our speed at which we're amplifying information amongst the hive mind that exists on this planet, that behavior spreads really rapidly. Mm. So essentially you have this tremor of uh, sort of anti-attention and like sort of we want to now, we're going to evolve to protect our synapses. And that's what we're doing right now. And like, I think, I think that like that's the opportunity, these kinds of sea changes in like, you know, hundreds of millions of humans on the planet today, exposed to phones, exposed to computers. Like, look at our postures. Like, you know, this kind of neck behavior only exists because we, we look mm. at this thing all the time. Like, mm. that's a new environmental stressor. So we're just going to counteract that. We're going to get sick of it, and we're going to say, how do we counteract that? Mm. And, and that's going to that's create a, a huge market for, for products. Uh, you know, so it's really interesting. It's like, what's the innovator's dilemma for Slack? Mm. It's like, how do, how do I actually get people to do work that doesn't involve being in a meeting or communicating like with others? Slack is going to have to move into areas where computers are doing work for humans. Computers mm. are routing messages for humans. Computers are uh, organizing information so you have to read less. Like, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to use Slack for eight hours a day to get the context I need and then do work after that. I need Slack to organize and summarize and route messages for me. And so I want Slack to be my assistant as opposed to me being Slack being my boss. Mm. And I, th- I think that that is like, and, and, and that means like, you know, companies like Microsoft who have very strong machine learning teams, how do they build the anti-Slack? Mm. So that's like market cap at risk. Facebook, which is all about attention. How do we build the thing that, you know, grabs our attention? 
like the thing that disrupts Facebook improves our human experience. You know, the thing that allows us to connect, it's like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was all about the, the social graph, you know, mm. and the, now what about the experience graph? The only mm. thing we have at death is like basically the, num the sum of our experiences, who we were with, what we do, did with them, and like the memories that we created. So how do we, instead of optimizing on, you know, keeping me away from that, how do we optimize for that? Mm. Because we have, you know, machine learning algorithms are designed for optimization. Like, mm. Fundamentally, that's what they do. And it's like literally changing the, uh, changing the reward state. Like what, what are we rewarding these algorithms uh, with? Uh, that is what we have an opportunity as designers of these systems to do. So I definitely see the anti-attention movement and the sort of, uh, and the, um, experiential movement kind of combining together to form a new era of products um, you know mm -hmm. so you talked about uh, this anti um, this anti-attention or the anti Facebook anti slack companies or anti slack movement uh, yeah. how do you know that that movement won't go to a rejection of all technology as opposed to um, kind of integrating with technology so, so I, I think the thing is that like, we just have to look at our baseline, which is like, if we had no technology as humans, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation. We wouldn't be able to move. I think like, uh, you know, we always need to consume technology as a species to move forward. So there's never, there's never going to be a rejection of technology. There's going to be a rejection of the types of technology that retard our evolution. Mm. You know, like, so if the fact is that we spend so much time on Slack that we are desensitized to messaging and it makes us upset, then we're going to reject it actively and seek something that, that eliminates that stress. Mm. So if, if, I, if I gave you a, a Slack type software that essentially like did your messaging for you and then summarized messages from the people that you need to communicate with, so you only, you only needed five minutes per day to use it. Actually, the original anti-attention technology was Google. Mm. You know, like, uh, I, I mean, there's probably more, but like Google is a really good example of like Google did not maximize page views. Google maximized the speed at which you came in and you left. And that was the thing that like in an era of portals, we didn't want to look at portals and web pages. We're just spending all this time looking at portals and web pages. Mm. So the same is true of like the sort of communication era. We have a saturation of linear communication. We know that machines can summarize and generate uh, messages better for us. So we need them to be assistance to us to help us do less. You know, it's like no one is going to replace our ability to form the message that we need to write or even route it to the right person. But imagine that I've got 500 messages in my inbox. I want the system to read them. I want the system to reply to the things that I don't have to reply to. And then I want the system to summarize and organize my work so that I just spend five minutes on it. And I think companies that do that will disrupt Slack. Mm. And this brings to mind a random idea of essentially what I know about languages. Uh, language also seems to be a sort of technology like the technologies we we're talking about, meditation, mindfulness, and all those different that have been around for a long time. With yeah. language, as it's progressed, we've started to lose the politeness signifiers. So in English, we would have to you know, do these long uh, over you know, just overbearing kind of titles for everyone. And, and it's still embedded in various languages. I speak Thai and in Thai, the, the way you speak to somebody is like all dependent on status and hierarchy and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. it's, it seems that technology has a impact on that and that it requires less. Like the more we go further into time, 
less um, politeness is required in emails, and it seems to and it seems to related to what you were talking about um, about about these technologies essentially uh, changing our ability to communicate. Yeah, I think uh, I think I think the cool thing is we want machines to do our work for us, mm -hmm. and I think that anything that creates more work for us or or new types of work or new types of stress will be rejected. Like initially, we'll enjoy them. It's sort of like I think about the the you know before Facebook came about on college campuses. I was at Oxford. Oxford is one of the first schools outside of uh, United mm. States to have to have Facebook. At that time, I knew like 30 people, 40 people. And then when Facebook came about, it's like, wow, there's this like fascinating amount of information that I don't know that I want to consume. And, if the, and the thing is like for five or six years, you get really used to like consuming mm. that information and, and it's a positive. Mm. And then eventually it becomes a saturation. And I think that the same thing is true of like any medium that has any kind of synaptic association with us will eventually saturate our ability to consume it and then we'll reject it. And this is kind of like what's going to happen in communication and kind of what's going to happen in attention. This is why, you know, mm. like we're actually seeing a whole generation that is just focused on consuming experiences mm. because like, you know, that's a, that's a movement. That's the anti TV movement. Mm. We don't need to sit in our, in our rooms to, to, but when the first time that TV came about, we could transport ourselves to, you know, Cape Canaveral and go see like, you know, the, the, the sort of moon landing, or we could go see uh, what was going on in Africa or, you know, what was going on in another country. Mm. Now we just go there and we experience it and we record those experiences. And, and uh, one of the key experiences that I think our generation is finding particularly, particularly in New York and San Francisco is one, one you've already mentioned, which is ecstatic dance. Are you going to ecstatic dance? Do you do it? I've, I've, I've been to ecstatic dance. I've been to five rhythms. I think uh -huh. look, I, essentially, essentially like, our generation has got so into our heads that we mm. need to get into our bodies. And this yes. is just something, something that is just, you know, people are going to discover. Mm -hmm. uh, people are going to rediscover. Like mm. they're literally going to rediscover like leaving the house and, and, and like interacting with others. And it becomes a novelty to go do that. And I think technology will help us do that. Finding mm. out where those opportunities are, finding out kind of, but this is just more of an awareness thing. It's just like, mm. we've got so into sitting in front of a computer and, and chatting and like doing work that, Eventually, we're like, this doesn't feel right. I feel ill. I feel mm. fat. Mm -hmm. I, I feel unhealthy. What can I do against that? And mm. like, we're going to rediscover what it means to be in our body and rediscover what it means to, uh, you know, uh, entertain ourselves and to form more experiences. Because mm -hmm. I think the philosophical thing is like, death is inevitable. We may prolong death. We may extend death. But ultimately, what we have at the deathbed is not money and titles and uh it's like who we were with and the experiences we had mm. and i think we're going to start optimizing against that and mm. that's going to be a realization that people have as a rejection to the attention economy very um, cool so so we got a couple minutes left um i want to just kind of talk a little bit about what you're reading right now and kind of yeah. what the ideas that are coming into your head are we've already talked a lot about it but what specifically are you reading right now yeah um so i'm actually uh so i think there's a couple of I've been reading, so I talked about Jodorowsky as being like a, a key influence. Like, I think anytime that you can read the thoughts of someone who is, uh, has a lot of conviction and thinks mm. independently. So he has a book called Psychomagic, which is, you know, like, I think there are, you know, like there are lots of connections between what we think and what we do and how we organize our thoughts to, to develop our imagination 
and our creativity. So psychomagic is essentially sort of a set of principles from Jodorowsky around how he goes about his creative process, how he kind of encourages you as an artist or as a creative thinker to, to, to think about that. And, you know, I think like to understand like where he came from and, and, and his mind is something that was, is very special. And so that's, that's captured in there. Um, I read this book. Um, so Nolan Bushnell, who is the founder of Atari, uh-huh. wrote, uh, wrote, the, wrote this book called How to Find the Next Steve Jobs. Um, has a cliche title, but really like uh, Atari was one of, the, one of the first companies in Silicon Valley to really combine, you know, it was the first company that had nap pods. It was the first company that had like, you mm-hmm. know, uh, costume parties. It was the first company that treated engineers as creatives and like created an environment that let them do whatever they wanted. And it has a, a set of principles to hire creatives, to get the best out of them, to um, organize their work, how to recognize them, mm. how, to, how to decode fakers from people that are really creative. Mm. And it's just like this set of distilled principles from like the 80s, 90s Silicon Valley that gets forgotten right now. And I love that book and I keep rereading it when I think about hiring and mm. I think about creativity. Mm. Uh, but like Psychomagic by Alejandro Jodorowsky, mm. And uh, how, to, how to Find the Next Steve Jobs by Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari, uh, two, two great books that I keep rereading. Cool. I'll want to interview again about another book you're reading eventually because uh, I'm starting a new series on this podcast where I interview people about what they're reading and then we talk about the book basically. Cool. Uh, yeah, love that. But, uh, Psycho Magic. It also, I, I got suggested to it two days ago at the Long Now Foundation um, and it actually turned into a kind of therapy almost. So there are like psychomagic uh, practitioners and stuff like mm-hmm. that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think all of these things are intertwined in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, the connection between mind and creativity, attitude and creativity, um, and our ability to sort of organize our own mindset around these things mm-hmm. and use sort of positive perception. You know, it's like if you look at Dali, Dali used to, you know, sort of, uh, he used to think in a sort of semi-sleep state because that, you know, dimension of the mind is like, is a place where you can play. And then he mm. used to go and draw those ideas. So mm. we, need, we need to tap into some of these sort of hybrid, uh, you know, s- s- uh, states mentally in order to, and, and, uh, and find ways of, inc- you know, using our mindset to, to drive towards them. And in this world of distraction, like mm. we, need, we need these types of influences to, to take us back to an optimal state of being. That was beautiful. So how can people find, uh, find out more about you or find you to talk more about all these cool things you're talking about? Yeah, so uh, you can go to my website. So sumonsadu.com, uh, check it out. Um, you know, there's interviews and essays that I've written there. Um, a lot of it is about technology. A lot of it is about the future, some aspects of creativity, but kind of that's a good way to get to know me. And mm-hmm. then you can find me on Twitter at sharpshoot. Uh, you know, send me, send me a response, uh, engage in the discussion. But uh, yeah, post a lot of stuff there. Cool. Uh, a lot of my thinking. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was really, really inspiring. Yeah, awesome. Uh, thanks for having me, Stuart. And uh, great that you get to do yep. this. Yep. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next 100 years will require us to think way outside the box. 
As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you.